And now, Hollywood Prospectus. Thank you, ladies and gentlemen. Hold your applause. Shia. Hello and welcome to the Hollywood Prospectus Podcast. My name is Chris Ryan. I am a writer for Grantland.com and on the other line, he stays tipping $100 at the diner. It's Andy Greenwald! I like the eggs over medium. It's a tough order. (laughs) Yeah. And if I get it, I have to show appreciation. You like a slight browning to your hash browns. Just a slight browning. Yeah. I like like a hash tan. Yeah. Chris... I miss you, buddy. We, we're not doing video today, and that means everyone in America is being robbed of the number of shirts you're wearing. I'm wearing two shirts! I think that's nuts. I mean, is that where we're going in 2015? It's not. It's like there's a little bit of, um, I'd like to thank the makers of Gantt clothing uh-huh. that allows me to dress in this sort of like urban lumberjack kind of, uh, you can't tell whether I'm in Southern California or Northern California. Do I work... Do I work with lumber? Do you work? But I do I work. Think... When you think about how every every blog post mm-hmm. is a tree that I plant, mm-hmm. then I do work with lumber. Chris, I think that this just speaks to the general decadence of California, <laughs> if you will. Because yeah. clothing and style, it's not functional anymore at this point. You're really just amusing yourself. Like As you sort of, say that, like I'm some just... sort of fatted Roman... You know, in the in the Colosseum, watching those of us who are, live in colder places just murder each other with with tritons. And, and, and as nets. you say that, I just pour a bag of almonds on the ground. Yeah. <laughs> say, yeah. here's to your drought. <laughs> yeah. Listen, before we get going, I think we should mention just a little bit of house cleaning, such as Chris. You and I record this podcast, the Hollywood Prospectus Podcast, and we rarely mention where people can listen to it with regularity. That's right. Do you Go want ahead me to do that, or <laughs> you can find you... us. You can you can subscribe to the Hollywood Prospectus feed directly. So if you just want episodes of Hollywood Prospectus, you can go to iTunes, search Hollywood Prospectus podcast. You'll find it there. You can also subscribe to Grantland Pop Culture and get more wonderful uh, Grantland Pop Culture podcasts, like Right Reasons, Do You Like Prince Movies, etc. I'm a big fan personally of the Andy Greenwald podcast, <laughs> but that's just me. <laughs> Literally, of the two of us, it's just me. Um, is there other ways people we can also watch us on? Usually, you can watch us on youtube.com slash Grantland Podcasts. I think you can subscribe there as well. Yeah, so that that's a good 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 house cleaning, dude. Servicey. Uh, today, obviously, we're talking about Mad Men, man. Uh, we're going to talk about the well, quasi season no. premiere, right? Yeah, but not just that. We are also delayed a day. We're this is we're recording this Monday. We're going to post this on Tuesday because we wanted to talk about the season one finale of Better Call Saul. Yeah, exactly. So that will be a spoilerific one. So if you're if you've watched Saul on Monday night, you know at the end of the podcast or the second half of the podcast, we dedicated to the first season of Saul. And uh, yeah, so let's talk about Mad Men. Um, but you should, we should. I also last bit of house cleaning. We're about to hit the silly season. We got Mad Men, and we've got, of course, Thrones coming up. This is wild, man. My Sundays are are consumed. Totally consumed. I've got what? Baranski season still going. Yeah, Baranski season is live. Thrones is back. Mm-hmm. We've got Mad Men. Chris, next week after Thrones, the funniest show on TV, Veep returns with maybe the funniest episode run. It's done. Really? It's fantastic. Great. It's great. Great. Uh, we got a lot going on. Um, 
but I wanted to say that Thrones is not... We're not going to preview Thrones on this show. We're going to do something special later in the week, and then we will be doing it from here on out forever. Yeah, while you're subscribing to podcasts, feel free to hit the button on a new pod that Andy and I will be co-hosting called Watch the Thrones, which will include several Grantland staffers. Um, we'll try to do it once a week. Where we, I mean, we'll still talk about Game of Thrones on this podcast, but you'll be able to hear a lot of like interviews and, and fun stuff on Watch the Thrones, which will be more of a dedicated pod. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. I, you got so quiet there. I thought you got kind yeah, of Yeah, I got my NPR voice on. Okay. So let's talk about Mad Men. Uh, Mad Men. Let me ask you this. Yeah. Did Severance, last mm-hmm. night's episode, feel like. Not not Joan Severance, the star of many late night Cinemax films, but in fact Severance, the money that is owed to people when they I've never leave heard a place of Joan of Severance. Yeah, you have. No, I was. Uh, who was um, that woman? Who's the one was... who's married to the dude from Kiss? That's exactly what I was going to say. That's really creepy. <laughs> yeah, look, we are, we basically we, we we are cultural peers. I mean, it's one of the reasons why we have a podcast together. <laughs> but look, let, let's move on. Shannon uh, Tweed, but yeah, let's Shannon move on. Tweed. Okay, so anyway, Severance. Did you feel like Severance was more like an eighth episode of a season or a first episode of a season? Dynamite question. Uh, season premiere. Absolutely. Oh. I thought you know I, I was. Uh, very dismissive of the splitting of Mad Men Season 7 into two parts from the beginning because it was very, very transparently an attempt by AMC to sort of stretch its profits, prop up, prop itself up for another year um, because you sound very much. You sound very Glenn Greenwald when you talk like that. Like, very, like I'm angry? Yeah, like you're like, uh, you're like take the government it's, to task for their it's a farce. Of spying. Yeah. I have someone on the inside that leaked the documents. <laughs> That said, turn, colon, America spies just wasn't cutting it. Um, look, I'll, I'll, I'll dial it down. I just think that it was sort of a silly thing to do, particularly if it wasn't just a cynical we have nothing else to put on in 2015 move, and it was the thought that maybe Mad Men would experience a similar ratings bump to Breaking Bad because it's just a very different show. I mean, Breaking Bad was a race to the finish line. Mad Men is just kind of going to end with a story, and yeah. that's not the same thing. So that said... I wondered if they had, if Matt Weiner had had figured out a way to sort of do a soft pause instead of a stop at the end of the first part of season seven. Right. And I really think maybe maybe in terms of tone or in terms of the story that we're ultimately going to be told here, it's possible to see it that way. But really, this felt almost like a like a like a hard reboot than um, a resumption of whatever ended at the end of the last half. So season. the amount so- of time passed on the show is the amount of time passed in real life since we have last had. An yeah, episode of Mad Men. More or less, yeah. I think that um, the first part of season seven took place during the bulk of uh, 1969. Mm-hmm. And this season, and this is this in itself is kind of a surprise. This season begins in what appears to be the spring of 1970. So the show that many people thought was about the 60s, so maybe it would end on New Year's Eve 1969, uh, has already jumped forward into a uh, land did he of, ever of, say, of mustaches. Did he ever say something about, like, a God forbid I ever... He had said before that he wasn't going to go into the 70s, correct? He didn't. And actually, um, he's in the, the language that he's used in interviews recently has basically been has been very vague. Like, he, he had no restrictions. He could jump further, which, God, I really hope we are not going to have some sort of flash-forward ending to this. I, I have no interest in that. But what, one of the more interesting things that came out with the interviews that he's done this round um, was in an interview he did with Alan Sepinwall. Or, you know what? I'm, I'm wrong. It wasn't even in an interview. Alan Sepinwall wrote this in his 
season preview piece, which was that initially Weiner had intended to start the series in 1959, and the only reason it started in 1960 was because that's when the birth control pill became available. So Weiner has never really been as hemmed in by the decade as we imagined him to be. Okay. Uh, incidentally, he can stop doing interviews. <laughs> yeah. He's, he, he's out there. Yeah. But he's yeah. like, I mean, like, I'm glad that he's feeling chatty, but they're, they're, there's so rarely anything that, of substance comes from them. That, I mean, it's, it's, it's very true, because in general, when people do press blitzes, they talk specifics, and he refuses to talk specifics, yeah. which more power to him. One thing I'll say, I don't think we've ever said it on the show, I, I tweeted it, one of the most revealing interviews about the creative process I've ever read was an interview of Matt Weiner by one of his writers, Semi Chellis, and it's in the Paris Review. You can Google it. It is really fascinating. But it has nothing to do with, like, oh, how is it going to end? And is someone really going to jump out of the Yeah, window? right. Is, is, is Megan a, a Manson girl? Yeah, none of that. Um, so, 70s. Here we are. And it, it's, it's the 70s. And I think that you wrote a little bit about this. Or, you know, honestly, like, there's so much stuff about Mad Men that you'll forgive me if I, if I over, like, layer your ideas onto somebody else's. It's called the Andy Greenwald Podcast. <laughs> it's available on iTunes. But... <clears throat> this idea that America is hurtling forward and yet Don remains the same, that he is in a yeah. sort of state of stasis. Is that your your bit? God. Is that my take? Was that, the, your, was that roaring, something you said? Ro- roaring brush fire <laughs> of hot takes. Was, the that, internet is was that you standing in front of a field of burning almond trees? <laughs> <laughs> it was. Saying, bring more water. Taking a 40-minute shower. Uh, uh, yeah, I mean, the the, yeah, the idea that I that I was interested in was the fact that the Don Draper we see at the beginning of this episode is more or less the Don Draper we see at the beginning of this of the yeah he's if premiere. anything he has regressed where he's sort of gone through these m- baptisms of whether it's alcohol or uh, you or know, swimming or new swimming. new relationships yeah new and, opportunities. and and now he seems to have like I think that you know like clearly he is sort of uh, I think Molly mentioned today in her recap she said something about how he is. You know, sort of in he swallowed Dick Whitman. You know what I mean? Like that, in like a vanishing twin in the womb or something. Like he has become both of these men at the same time. I, I think the thing that the show has very much been about. I mean, we said a moment ago how you know it, it was never actually quote unquote about the '60s in the way that many people wanted it to be or presumed that it was. That what the show has done very deftly and at times, I think particularly season six, um, sort of frustratingly, has showed that. Um, human history isn't the same as what we call history and that while circumstances may change around you in wild and dramatic fashion fashions certainly have changed facial hair has changed um internally we are very often stuck with ourselves and it's much much harder to affect actual lasting personal change and don is sort of the avatar of that idea um and this whole episode severance what was kind of um remarkable about it was the way that it hit that same point on so many different uh uh, levels. The idea was that you know the greatest impediment to anything isn't um, the historical moment, and that's not fair. The greatest impediment to personal change, because obviously there's a reason why Don isn't an, ex- an account executive in 1968. Sure, um, but it's not the the larger circumstance. It's it's totally internal, and we saw that not just with Don in the in the broader sense of the series, but Ken Cosgrove um, is dragged right back in to the hamster wheel of his life. Not for any reason other than the old, the old, those old saws of vanity and resentment mm-hmm. and ego. 
Um, he had an out. He has a happy marriage. He has a happy family. He has apparently talent as a science fiction writer, and he has a wife who's saying, please don't do this. Yeah, you we are have unhappy. money. We don't need you to do this. Yeah. And his desire to screw over Pete Campbell is so strong that he has re-yoked himself by choice. <laughs> that's pretty. That's a pretty rough thought. The Ken stuff was cool because, and, and this actually is something I've been thinking about a lot with Better Call Saul, is that there are very few shows that are that that have enough space in them or have like a feeling of discovery as they unfold in any given yeah. episode so that you can basically be sitting there and you think Ken is going to be this oh this is Ken's 2 minute cameo like he's coming off the bench to take a couple corner threes and then he's going to go sit down <laughs> and then all of a sudden it's just 25 minutes about Ken you know like yeah. And and the same thing kind of happens in Saul in the, in the sense that you just have that feeling of wonder where you're like, I got gosh, I just don't know what is going to happen in the next scene. There, you don't have the well, sort of weight of like all these little Chekhov's things going on, and uh, there isn't. I, I think that maybe there was a lot of of TV a couple of years ago that made me very very aware of plot and and yes. how everything needs to be tightly constructed to get towards an endpoint. And this is just this feels very different than that. And I think that that's really the sign that you're in the hands of, an, of, a, of a really capable and talented storyteller. The idea that there is something broader and richer being conveyed here. That, that, that you know, he's, he's basically conducting an orchestra. And if it's time for a woodwind solo, then it's time for a woodwind solo. And yeah. that's why you have the woodwinds. You know, you, they're not always playing, but that's why they're there. And I think, you know, the other reason here is that this is that was probably Ken Cosgrove's last hurrah, but he got quite an exit, you know, as as we head. towards. So you the don't think line. that Ken is going to be like the antagonist of this season? <laughs> what if he, what, he's the big bad for the miniseason? I know. With Dow Chemical. <laughs> I mean, this is this is the bigger thing. And we, I, we should talk some more about the specifics. But this is the bigger thing that I feel um, sadness about at the end of Mad Men is that it really is the last of these kinds of shows where we can just go nuts with symbolism and, 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 and thematic text and, and emotion, it's, it's not headed towards anything other than where it's headed. You know, I'm not, th there are very few big questions to be asked here. And, I, and I, I really do think that it's the last of a breed in the sense that there won't be many more high, big ticket shows. And let me be clear, like drama series, not limited series, because you can potentially do something with those with those goals in a limited series now but just in terms of like a season to season it'll go seven seasons just kind of about life and stuff those aren't being greenlit anymore and i think that's a shame i you can tell the tension is still there even with the limited series i i know that bloodline is coming back for a second season and i don't want to give anything away from it i know that you you, you kind of got about halfway through it and and, and other stuff came up but you can feel that same tension in something even like bloodline which ostensibly had could go in a number of different directions where even though I, I very much enjoyed the second half of the season of Bloodline, the first few episodes, they set up this incredibly interesting world of the keys where it's like paradise and hell at the same time and all these different characters with their different kinds of prospects in life. And then it becomes very much this tightly, tightly wound mystery thriller plot, you know, as the right. second half of the season goes. And it, it, it would be nice if even with the finale coming, if Mad Men just – excuse like all the things that you would expect from a final season it would be interesting if it does that yeah i mean if you think about it this is this is something that i wrote last week like what what questions are really left to be asked here other than big blinking questions that we have for ourselves like like how will we live and when are we going to die i mean there, there's nothing really out there other than will don finally be able to 
piece together some semblance of happiness or at least point himself in the direction of happiness. Right. Um, well, let me ask you this. Do you think he's happy? No. No. Absolutely not. I mean, and, and I think— Because you know, of I, Rachel dying or because just in general he's just still a wandering soul without a home? Well, he—the end of the last season, well, let's just call it that, you know, was at, at the time I was kind of a little—I was I appreciated that episode with the landing on the moon and, and Burt Cooper's death and the song and dance at the end. But I was a little bit dismissive of the the one more time— Let's get the band together, hijinks to, to save the firm and keep the status quo. Sure. But the further I get from it, and, and especially in light of, of this new season premiere, you realize that that's kind of the point. The outrageous lengths that they go to maintain the status quo is kind of a farce. And it's kind of the, it's the kind of comedy that is actually kind of a tragedy in the end. Because Don was so close. And the actual biggest thing that happened in that last episode was he just let happiness slip away again. Not that he necessarily would have been happy with Megan, but he kind of was happy, especially when they were in California um, prior to her moving there. And he just let it vanish because he was so intent on maintaining the status quo, which, again, that's vanity and ego mm-hmm. and resentment and the desire to be perceived a certain way. Remember, he spent that whole the first half of last season staying in New York pretending to work right. rather than be with and, his wife. Yeah, and then doing stuff for Freddie on the side, right? Yeah, so he's it's not happiness. It's seeking validation in the wrong place, and it's... It, and you know, I, and that's sort of a, the, what the series has always been about. And the fact that they now have endless money, and he has endless women, and on his answering service, it, it's there's still this existential hollowness. And so that's, I am grateful that that maybe we're we will be done with that. You know? Yeah, it was definitely a. It was sort of a ghost story, right? Because he keeps thinking he's seeing yeah. Rachel, and and die is. This is it, Elizabeth Reeser is the waitress. In yeah, the diner. But like what, like that. Even even the the, t- the how it takes place in that frozen in time diner, and she's reading a book from from the twenties, and I think I think the USA was written by in the twenties by Despasos. It could have been in the thirties, and um, you know she doesn't even look like a woman from the seventies. Do you know what I mean? Like there's no yes. not there's it, no it, f- it, like a visual it, cues that she's. I, you know, like a, a a hippie or anything like well, that. And one of the things that that Mad Men has really done well, especially in the second half. No, you know what? It's always done this well. It is a New York show that is filmed in in Los Angeles, mm-hmm. and that allows it to sort of play with these archetypes and sort of dream images of New York that that don't exist now, certainly, and maybe didn't even really exist then. So that diner is like a not real space. I mean, right. that was. I, it looked like maybe I'm wrong. It looked like the diner where the massacre was in L.A. Confidential. I wonder if it was the same space, the same set. Yeah, the same set, well, the same or the same actual diner, and it kind of ends up looking like a Hopper painting, you know. So it's that's like what I was dream. I was going to say. It's like maybe this entire show has been a Hopper painting, but you know, so I, they're, yeah, so they're moving through these spaces that are kind of like yeah, they're they're paintings or they're purgatories, and and it was it was all kind of interesting and elliptical in the ways that only the show and it's be. interesting too because you could say that a lot of this stuff in this in this series has been Matthew Weiner interrogating concepts we have or stereotypes of places you know whether it's new york or los angeles or um the future or the past you know it's it's like he's he's he takes something that you think you have in your mind in a in a postcard whether it's you know like la in the 60s yeah and he actually investigates what it might have been like almost but almost intellectually more than really you know yeah it, but speaking about images one thing i wanted to mention um and this is something that, that I'll give him credit for. The Seppenwall did mention in his recap. 
the I said that at the top that that the first time we see Don Draper in this episode, you know, he's essentially the same as he was in in the, in the series premiere, but the way that it's shot isn't. And Scott Hornbacher directed this episode. He's directed a lot of them. And this, the the whether it was the the lighting, the film stock, whatever they used, it looked like the parallax view. Mm-hmm. I mean, it was the seventies mm-hmm. in in this like. And it was, and I'm, you know, I, we've talked about this before. I'm not generally a student of direction. I'm not visually minded often in that way. It was striking and 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 startling how suddenly just the way that it's the shot is framed and and made takes us to a different era. Yeah, and then there, it, but then there are some shots that seem frozen in time. Like some of the stuff with Joan and mm-hmm. Peggy seemed very much like it could yeah. have been from season three in terms of the framing and like their interactions. Obviously, these are two women who are now. Joan is incredibly rich, and Peggy's got a lot going for her professionally. Um, yeah, it'll be. I, I, there's not. There wasn't enough really in the plot that that, that happened in the plot to, to really warrant like I think much more discussion. But it's obviously fantastic to have these characters back. Yeah, there are people we didn't see. There was no sense of a a large storyline necessarily. There was no. There's no big client to get. There was no new romance or or love or, or, or romantic status quo. Um, and I, you know, there's no way of knowing even if. There will be, and there's it, there's a certain sense among several characters of of a dissatisfaction despite being incredibly wealthy, and that that gets hit over and over again with Roger just throwing away a hundred dollars, which would have been like five hundred dollars, you know, yeah, on a tip, and Joan just buying outfits, and and Don obviously just like you know the red wine on his carpet, and who cares? And there's there's a certain materialism I think, that, and, and a dissatisfaction with that material wealth that that will be interesting to watch unfold over the course of the season yeah i just i guess we should just wrap up just by saying it's it's just like it was last year it's very frustrating that it'll be over in six weeks this is the thing is that i would be i there are so many shows that overstay their welcome and i would just actually be fine with this show being er you know like if they want yeah we said this yeah if they said this last week if they want to do 12 seasons of this i would just be just fine with that if they wanted to do one season every one and a half two years i would be fine with that and it's kind of ironic because, you know, we, we we talk about how this is this great prestige auteurist show, but it it's kind of all it ended up kind of being old fashioned because it was a it's a workplace series, you know, sometimes comedy, sometimes drama. And those are the kind of places we don't want to leave. But even on a more um, uh, of the moment kind of observation, I've said before, one of the reasons I don't like. Uh, the binge model on Netflix isn't just because it makes my job as a critic harder, but because it 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 crams the conversation. It you know it condenses it like like one of those you know remember the beginning of National Lampoon's Vacation when they get the wrong car and their old car gets gets pancaked. Yeah, that's kind of what the conversation is like. And when it happens with something uh, that's good like Orange Is the New Black, it's kind of disappointing because you kind of want to keep discovering things at the same pace and being able to have a conversation. When it happens with something like Unbreakable Kimmy Schmidt, when it's just this weird thing where people have fun and then someone yells racism in a crowded theater and then everyone shuts up, it, like it's just it doesn't seem like a conversation. And with Mad Men, it's it's an old fashioned show, and I wish it would sort of unspool over twelve weeks. So we yeah, could right. Really sink I in. wish we had Six, three months of it too. Yeah, it just feels too short. But anyway. We have we we'll we'll treasure those six, the next six weeks. Um, one thing that we is sort of like we I don't think we even really discussed this that much, but I know this is one of your favorite shows of all time. So I wanted to ask you about the news that uh, David Lynch is now perhaps not and likely I guess likely not coming back to direct or be involved yeah. with the Twin this... Peaks reboot on Showtime, and it sounds like it's an issue of money. 
This is so weird. So it's both it's predictable, but it's weird the way it's playing out. And I, I really hope that people more connected uh, than me are doing their best to, to, to get to the bottom of this actual story. So, yeah, bigger context, Twin Peaks, probably my favorite show of all time. Definitely my first obsession and first favorite show. So the news that, that David Lynch and Mark Frost, who created it 25 years ago, were coming back together for a, was it eight or nine episode miniseries continuation no one had any idea for showtime was really exciting kyle mclaughlin was involved i gotta say showtime was really really putting its cart way before its horses here they you know they they had these they had big press announcement at the end of the year like to critics they sent a mailing that included a they sent a cherry pie to us really with a you know basically being like this and this is this show wasn't even supposed to happen until 2016 at their tca panel kyle mclaughlin came out to give them a hot cup of coffee they were really fired up about this which is probably a mistake and so then news broke yesterday david lynch broke it himself on twitter saying that he was bowing out and he said it was because they weren't giving him enough money to to make the vision possible now this doesn't make sense twin peaks was not that demanding a show especially in the world of game of thrones you know which costs a hundred million dollars for a season right if they if Showtime talked this big and advertised this much and paid to send us all cherry pies, they were going to spend money on the show. What I'm curious about is how invested in it David Lynch ever really was. Because if you think about the original series, he obviously conceived of the show. He beautifully directed the first three hours of it, four hours of it. And then he ghosted. Right. He left. He, he was not involved with the show for the bulk of its run, and certainly not the second season, which a lot of people didn't like, but I loved. He came back just to direct the final two episodes. So in terms of the people who were really were running it day to day, it was, it was Mark Frost and, and Robert Engels and Harley Payton and all these other writers. Um, Lynch kind of isn't making movies anymore. He's making solo albums. And, right, and, and there's been meditation. some people have talked about whether or not, like, he's sort of a victim. I mean, I, I have a hard time believing this that there's nobody out there that would just cut the check for David Lynch for yes. a film. But there is some discussion about whether or not he is a victim of one of the of, of this sort of changing economics of film, where it's either you make these incredibly cheap movies which pay you off the back end when they right. do well on demand or, in, you know, in the case of, like, It Follows, like, have a surprising box office, or you have to make blockbusters. And uh, he does not do kind of doesn't do either of them. I mean, some of his films do look expensive, even if they are made inexpensively. I was sort of wondering whether or not there was another thread here, and this is just like pure speculation, is how surprised I was that Twin Peaks and Showtime were partners. Because uh, typically, and I don't mean this in a derogatory way, it just seems like Showtime really milks the hell out of whatever product it has. Yes. You know, there we've always joked about, like, if you're a show on Showtime, you have six se- seasons. I mean, Shameless is coming back for, like, a seventh season. Dexter was on for God knows how long. Home, Homeland is coming back. Nurse Jackie still exists. No, yeah, it's, like, like, finally the sh- last sh- season of Nurse Jackie. I mean, they like to have long ma- marathon they, shows, right? They do not have a reputation at present for being a creatively inspired network. Right. They find something that works, and then they that, figure that out ways okay. to sustain it. And it's been pretty explicit that it was showtime's interference that kept brody as alive as long as he was on homeland you know i would say i I think that that there's a there's a lot of back and forth about that but but the reason it's on showtime is because of uh corporate ownership cbs studios i believe owns twin peaks uh, even though it was on ABC originally, and Showtime is part of that company. Okay, but so obviously, the if they're sending out go. cherry pies, they were pretty jacked for the whole 
thing to happen. Yeah, and David place. Nevins, who is the head of the network, is a huge fan and was very, very excited to be doing this. I think partly because I, I would imagine, and from speaking to him briefly, I know this is more or less true, I think he's a little bit frustrated with the reputation of the network as one that doesn't necessarily take big creative chances or, you know, it doesn't win other I don't than think Homeland. It doesn't win Emmys. I would argue that that is not unique to Showtime anymore. I mean, you, we've we've sort of chatted about this a little bit on the edges, but even for shows that weren't successful, I mean, HBO doesn't make John from Cincinnati anymore. It doesn't make Carnival anymore. It doesn't make shows that are, in a way, looking was like that in the sense that it was sort of odd and, and didn't have like some of the same right. huge plot I- beats that we expect from prestige television anymore if, if you look if you if you if you actually look we are in a blockbuster era and all of the networks that we've been you know uh trumpeting for their quality are falling prey to many of the same de- decision making right there's uh, not like truly weird television on anymore no um, and, and it, like so so fx makes fargo and it wins a lot of awards and fargo is really good but fargo is also a you know pre-existing property and had a lot of you know a lot of and fargo is a mystery material <laughs> i mean like and fargo also- was a mystery when people were surprised that that uh, FX renewed the Americans for a fourth season because it has poor ratings, I wasn't. Not only because I adore the show, but I also know that FX does think about things and wants to be thought of uh, in a you know in terms of of uh, quality. And if you look at you know Justified's going off the air, the Americans is still going, and then you have the Strain and Tyrant, like that's not what they want to be known for necessarily. They want to get the ratings if they can get it, but that's not what they want to be known for. And so and so you're you're absolutely right on that point. And, yeah. and so even with Showtime extending it back to where we started, Twin Peaks has the 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 pre-existing you know the name recognition, but there is there is a deeper story here, and and I wonder if it's whether David Lynch sat down for two months with Mark Frost and they were just like, well, this isn't working, um, because that relationship I have no idea what it's really like. Um, my my feeling is if David Lynch doesn't direct nine episodes of new twin peaks that is not the worst thing in the world well, the worst thing in the world would be is if he didn't cons- almost you know do what he did the first time which is sit down and bring everything that is david lynchian to the the story that mark frost ends up cobbling you would know this answer better than me but do, do you get to the point in a pre-production process or in a negotiating process that they are without frost and lynch sketching out what it is they think the show is going to be that's the apparently what they had been doing. I mean, they wouldn't have because the, they Showtime wouldn't, they wouldn't saying, have, Showtime's they would, saying they're still arguing about deal points, and Lynch is talking about money. So obviously, whether it's Lynch's salary or the amount of budget that they're going to get to make the show, or whether or not you know, I have no idea. But what I'm curious about is whether or not this is also like Lynch is like Kyle Kyle McLaughlin is going to be in the right hand corner of one frame of this show, and then the rest of it is going to be about whatever. You know what I mean? Lo- if it was, logging. If it was just coll- if it was collapsing under the weight of it just not having a reason to exist, um, it would have this would have been done more gracefully. It, you know what I mean? Like if 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 the version of the story that Lynch and Frost came up with was just too left field, too about too much about logging, um, you know, too much about like Josie Packard's life as a doorknob. That's for the real heads out there. Huh. Um, then this would have broken in a different way yeah. you know the showtime would have fallen on the sword a little bit too there was something i just don't believe that it's really money i i think that there is some some creative unhappiness on lynch's part which is a huge huge shame um and i think that showtime is in a really weird spot because so much of what they just did was predicated on um the good vibes they cultivated by doing it right 
yeah. you know, getting the super fans on board first because, oh, my God, David Lynch is coming back to this world. Uh, I don't know what they do going forward. I mean, they, they've proven with – this is a very different example, but it's kind of an insight into their thinking – they had a show they were kind of psyched about called Happy-ish that starred Philip Seymour Hoffman. Sure. Obviously, he tragically died. They did not scrap the show. They scrapped the version of the pilot that he starred in, but they waited a year out of respect. They recast it with Steve Coogan. They refilmed it, and it's going to series. It's premiering this month, and it is awful. But mm. that's not the point. The point is is that they seem stubborn about their ideas. So I, I, I guess – I mean, their language in their statement was very odd. Yeah, they it was put deal out, points. Is, yeah. Yeah, and they were like, we are remain marginally hopeful that something can be accommodated in the future. It wouldn't be the weirdest this. thing in the world if David Lynch was weird. And that David Lynch, yeah, he's, you know, I mean, like, super it, weird. he seems like a guy who maybe shouldn't have Twitter. You know what I mean? Like, in terms of his, yeah. that you, you can't be surprised if that guy takes your, your business and puts it on Front Street. Not that he's, like, he, like a bad dude or anything, but it he, just seems like he might be him, into, but, like, be like, I have no compunction by blowing up your spot. Here's the other thing that's worth noting about him, unlike almost everyone else we talk about in TV. He doesn't need it. Like, I, I don't know his financial situation, but I just mean because of the kind of guy he is and has proven to be, and there are, you know, museum retrospectives of his work going right now, and he's, as we said, he's making albums and doing whatever he wants. He's got that Dune he, money. He, yeah, he's, he can say no. And, uh, you know, uh, Larry David was on... Um, on Fresh Air the other week, talking about, he has this play on Broadway, but he was talking about the early days of Seinfeld. And, you know, when they wrote the Chinese restaurant episode, which was early season one, the network said, we don't like this, mm -hmm. so could you change it in these ways? And he said, no. Right. And then they just went with it, because no one had ever said that to them before. And I, I feel like even more the case now, in general, any creative just saying no is really a, the strongest card you can play. Yeah, especially when it's something that even if he's only directed four hours of this show in the past, he is, his name is the sort of single greatest association the show has. Yeah, what, what I'm saying is he... We talked about with Better Call Saul, like before we knew it was actually good, that I had this weird fear that Vince Gilligan, who is an infamously or famously nice guy, was doing it because he wanted to please everyone, mm -hmm. which is not a place good art comes from. David Lynch, like, does care about Twin Peaks fans and is, by all accounts, a very nice man, but I don't think he cares about servicing them. Sure. Like, he'll walk away and it doesn't exist. It doesn't well, exist. that's a perfect segue. Thank you, buddy. Um, in the event that this podcast does get uploaded today and you've gotten to this point, you might want to hit pause now and come back tomorrow so that you can hear us talk about Better Call Saul because we are going to talk about it. Hit, hit fast forward because we're going to do some slap talk. <laughs> God, we're going to talk about Saul with spoilers. Um, yeah, we have seen tonight's season one finale. This is your last warning. We will talk about the season one finale of the AMC television show Better Call Saul. Turn. <laughs> the turn. American Spies. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so... I don't know why we had to do that, because there's really nothing to spoil. Nope. Yeah. Uh, this was... Let me give you the uh, optimist and pessimist view of this. Really, okay. it's... And, and I will also say that this is a stupid binary, because this show is great, and I don't care. Um, optimistic view is that these guys are still in sole control of their product, and will ease up or push down on the clutch as they feel like it. And we are so used to having ourselves thrown off of the ledge of a cliff before season's end or as season's end that something that is more or less boring down and expanding a character seems odd for a finale. You know? Freudian that you said boring, but keep going. Um, this was basically – it was interesting to me that it was directed by Peter Gould because it was 
in and of itself almost a little genre piece. Mm-hmm. Like it had the real like a vibe like um something like, you know, sweet smell of success mixed with early Coen brothers. It was very much like it's a standalone episode. Um, it had the it had the it had the con montage mm-hmm. and Yeah. Mm-hmm. And all the like the lighting, it just felt different. It was set in Chicago, obviously. A lot of it, yeah. And you know, we get to the very last shot, which is sort of suggestive that he has crossed a line, you know. Mm-hmm. But nothing really happened. He, here's my uh, plus minus take on it. What we had in one hour were the advantages of making a prequel and also some of the creative disadvantages. Um, the creative advantages for them in this episode and across the whole season was that they didn't have to do very much. They didn't have to have fireworks. The audience exists. People are interested in the character, and so they didn't have that 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 uh, that that buzzing in their ears that they had to go bigger or do something more. There was a pretty interesting set of comments in the Hollywood Reporter uh, today, or maybe it went up went up over the weekend, that when they initially conceived of the season and when they were breaking it, still that Nacho character was going to be much much more prominent, and it sounds like they were going to be building to a more Breaking Bad like conflict and collision. Mm-hmm. But as they were breaking the episodes, they realized they had to go deeper and they had to go slower in the origin story of Jimmy McGill slash Saul Goodman. Yes. And so Michael Mando, who plays Nacho, was really just off the board after the first four or five. Right. Um, but is given playing time in those opening episodes that suggest it's right. like, oh, this guy's important. But but this is something that they could afford to do that any other new series definitely couldn't. Right. You have to show what kind of show you're going to be. You can't just say, well, we're getting there. But, th- but they can because of the legacy of Breaking Bad and the pre-installed fan base. The, the creative disadvantages that I thought were on display in this episode were when you're telling a flashback, you're telling a prequel or an origin story, there is just, there's a, no matter how well or how stylishly you do it, there's an element of it that is connecting dots. And often that is less satisfying. Like when you know the outcome and then you see the pieces snap together, it can be momentarily thrilling. Like, aha, that's where he got the pinky ring. And I did Google it, like, Saul Goodman did wear that ring uh-huh. at various points in Breaking Bad. But there's another aspect to it where it's just like it felt labored in a way that is – usually they're better at hiding their work, I guess is what I'm saying. Because the, the whole part at the end where you know he's like, well, I'm never going to leave money on the table again. I am no longer that guy. Now I will be this guy. I guess so. I... And, and, and his friend dying, like the, the, the whole process of that. And, I, and again – I loved the season of TV. I'm happy I wrote about the penultimate episode last week because it was a little bit more satisfying. This this is the kind of work that needed to get done, and there's no one better at getting us there. I thought this was one of the logier examples of, of what they needed to do before the next stuff comes. I guess, you know, it, it, I like the idea of thinking about this is a character who, even before we meet him and even before we see this flashback, like, even in, in you know in the timeline of Saul... Better Call Saul, the, the, the black and white scene in the Cinnabon that opens this series is a sort of flash forward. But this is a guy who keeps going through sh- shedding and picking up new identities. So he was slipping Jimmy. Mm-hmm. Then he was Jimmy the Charlie Hustle. He's Charlie but, Hustle, right. Yeah. And then he's James McGill, who is who's basically trying to emulate Howard Hamlin. And then he kind of goes back into this idea that He's never had more like when when uh when Marco says I this is the most fun I've ever had, you know, for that week. Yeah. 
it's like that's what he's concentrating on. So it's not really about like my friend died and I'm never going to leave money on the table as much as it's he only truly feels alive when he is in the process of shedding skin. I mean, because even being a con man, he's always playing a part. I I think that's a that's a good way of looking at it. I I was thinking about it more in terms of maybe it's because this was also in my brain and in our brain, um, the Mad Men premiere and this idea that, you know, we are our own worst enemies when it comes to changing and improving this idea that, you know, he, he went to Albuquerque in the thrall of his brother and he sort of on some level believes that his, when his brother says that he, Jimmy is a bad person, um, that the idea of him, you know, driving away from the, what sounds like a pretty good job opportunity that has nothing to do with his brother Mm -hmm. is an act of spite that the, the nightmare version, the nightmare that Chuck has of what slipping Jimmy would, slipping jimmy with a law degree the nightmare vision of that is saul goodman yes so that in a way he's doing it intentionally now everything he does is fueled by anger and it's reactive you know in in much the same way ken cosgrove decides the next step of his career that's you know, the way i was thinking about that so i was gonna say something about bloodline but i wonder whether i should just save it um you know because i was thinking about like the the, the we we put a lot of thought and worry into like what character motivations are <laughs> and I was thinking about why Saul Jimmy is motivated to do what he does at the end of this episode, which is essentially go out on his own. You know, and he's actually doing what Chuck told him to do: is stop taking shortcuts, stop taking handouts, stop taking favors. Um, and when yeah, Kim, it, ling- it, ling- it lingers on the conversation with Kim when he says what you had to do, yes, to get this to exactly. happen. Exactly, she, she has a reaction when she hangs up as if she had gotten something done something right right exactly and that that this was going to settle all the scores and that everybody was going to be happy about this but it's interesting to see you know i i looked at that and i looked at saul's decision at the courthouse to be almost like he still can't get out from under what chuck wants from him which is for Mm -hmm. him to you know he want chuck wanted him to stop being a con man so he did and chuck wanted him to stop taking shortcuts and so he's decided that he's going to take the long way around that's interesting. I mean, I guess the fact that we're unsure—that's a good sign. Going yeah, into the I think next that I, I understand though. Like, it, there were subtle tonal shifts. You know, there was like I almost looked at this season as there was, um, there's the the first two, and then there's the middle three, and then the last few have had. Then then there was like the second third of it had a tone. Yeah, and then this last episode felt very much like the first episode to me. Of the first, the very first episode of the series, or the first episode of what comes next? Uh, no, the very first episode of this. Like it felt like the very first episode of the series, and that it had like mm-hmm. a lot of genre shifting going on. Mm-hmm. It was both humane, but also, you know, it has a great that bingo scene is incredible. Like you know, the the con man stuff is fun to watch. Con man stuff is always fun to watch. I don't know. I'm very great, very much looking forward to the next season. Great, great casting. I really Mel Rodriguez is is eating in Hollywood, Get and money, I'm really yeah. pleased about that. That dude was is, he's great on Getting On. He was on Enlisted. He's on Last Man on Earth. Here he is on this show, although I guess not anymore. Um, it's these little things that make the show so good, and casting is really a big deal. Yeah, um, casting ca- actors who are interesting to watch and compelling, and 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 bring something different to it um, are. And, and that's something that, that these guys always, always do. Uh, you know, I was ragging on AMC for its decision to split the final season of Mad Men. We then have to praise them for their, you could call it um, no-brainer, but their decision to immediately greenlight a second season of Saul before this one even premiered. Because they right. saw, they did that probably having seen the first two or three, having read the scripts for maybe all of them, or at least through eight, and they knew. 
I guess it would also be sort of ridiculous to have that team come back together and keep that whole industry running down there and then just be like, but we're only going to do 10 episodes, you know? Oh, yeah. But also you look at, um, you know, the v- Vince Gilligan was working on this, but initially the way this was pitched was that he was thinking about his next project. He was going to shepherd Peter Gold's show, Better Call Saul, mm-hmm. be involved in it. And he then also sold a script that he had written years ago to CBS um, called Battle Creek that he was going to work on with David Shore. And Battle Creek came and went. It's still on. Yeah, but it's it's going. I mean, yeah. the ratings have been awful. And from what I heard, um, both semi off the record or unattributed, you know, Gilligan sat down in meetings with CBS. He got one note that he hadn't gotten in the type of note he hadn't gotten in five years of Breaking Bad, and was like, "Screw it," right? You know, and and he is co-show running this, and and I don't blame him. I mean, people who make TV, especially people who are good at it, want to do is make TV, and that is very hard to do to get a show on the air. And so now he has this this potentially great one that is so well to tie this back into twin peaks it'll be really interesting to see what whether the stories trend in the direction of networks and content platforms need so much stuff to fill up their channels that they're going to start being even more warm in their interactions with creative people you know it's like oh yeah i got you you know we just need a show you can make the show you need to make or are they going to be more Hey, we need this to be something that lasts over multiple seasons and attracts a lot of people, you know? Well, let's segue into something that really fits the bill for that conversation, which is slap. Ugh. We got to finish the slap. And I bring it up. Ugh. I was going to bring it up anyway. <laughs> yeah. But this that's ex- a really good example of this because as much as the networks appear more and more hidebound and note-giving and ridiculous, they let this happen. Now, I mean that not in the negative way. You right. know, this is... So crazy that this took – not only did it take eight hours of primetime real estate on what is nominally the number one network on television at the moment. It was on Thursdays at 8 p.m. And it was called that The is, Slap. That's when The Cosby Show was on. <laughs> Do you understand me? Yes. Like this is crazy to me. I know. So obviously it was a disaster of Hindenburgian proportions, a disaster that I devoted eight hours of my busy professional life to. So I'm not not going to get something out of it, by the way. We have to talk about it. Yeah. What is – in what was eight eight hours of insanity, per, I think it goes without question that the most insane part of it was that it ended with a judge being like passing What a judgment. terrible television show. Yes. <laughs> the judge at the end said – this is a waste of my time. This is ridiculous. Yes. Status quo, status quo, gavel, gavel, gavel. Yeah. You can't do that. I mean, unless you are the cleverest, like, self-sabotaging, unless you are the like, Yukio Mishima on Homeland, of storytelling. Someone where... tells Carrie she's really bad at her job, but then something happens to prove yeah. that she's there... pretty useful at her job, right? There are a That's lot not, of... like, what happened here. It wasn't like, hey, actually, Judge, we learned a lot about each other. And about, you know, the different stratas of class in Brooklyn and what family really means and what's the di- – you know, none of that. And what, and what good photography is. Yeah. No. What, no. what Brooklyn accents really are. There are a lot of meta and how they may or may not have changed since On the Waterfront. There are many shows, all shows indulge in a little meta winking, you know, but that's not what this was. And, you know, I'll – we won't dwell on it. I, I will direct you to uh, Joe Reed wrote a piece on Slate about the show that was a lot more generous about it than I think I could ever be at this point and about its failings, um, which were numerous. So I think people should check that out if you actually care. But 
the fact that the show ended up on, you know, the final hour, we got away from you summarizing these because I think you just, your heart couldn't take it. But yeah. The final hour was devoted to Richie, who was a kid who was just the kid who was there photographing the party. Here is, here is, here is the slap writ large for you, right? All we know about Richie is that obviously he's some sort of photographic prodigy. He is entwined into the fabric of these people's lives. All the kids know him. He babysits. And that Connie, whose episode was, to my mind, the best of all of them, which is not saying this is hilarious that you think that. They were inseparable best friends, like soul brothers and sister, right? Like like when she found out that there was a guy in a purple sweatshirt and brand new never-worn shoes who had everything that her father ever marked important emotional material to be delivered to my daughter. (laughs) She brought Richie. Richie came and carried all the boxes. Richie stole his mom's BMW station wagon. Right. Very classic Brooklyn. Here's, here's, what I wanted, here's what we learned about Richie in this episode. They've known him for three months. Yeah. This episode revealed that Richie had a past where he was basically uh, cyberbullied under and had to change <laughs> his so name. so angry. <laughs> and move. Yeah. Which is to say that they met him in September and it's December. Right. Right. They just met him. He also, did you know that he was Gary's prodigy? His protege? That came later. But you cannot build a castle out of sand, John Robin Bates. You cannot. The only thing that the show was clinging to is the idea that these people were part of each other's lives. And if you pull one little Lincoln log or Jenga tile of of poor child management out, the whole thing collapses. And we talked this whole time about how, you know... The character of Rosie and Melissa George had clearly never met Uma Thurman's character, right. ever. Right. And so the, every time they saw each other, the writing was like, I love you so deeply. You're one of my closest friends. <laughs> you know, which is like whenever I see you and we're not recording, I'm like, hey, it's Chris Ryan, one of my very best friends who I've known for over one decade. <laughs> over 16 revolutions around the human earth, you and I have called each other comrade. I mean, that's basically the level of writing. Uh. But then you, just, you base this whole thing on the fact that Richie just met them. And not only that, let me just give a little – I know you love it when this becomes Parenting Corner. Mm-hmm. You know that – I know you love it when I approach television from the perspective, the hard-earned, literally 22 months of experience I have parenting. Let me just do that for a moment. Clear out. Take off one of your shirts. What I'm saying is if you are unfortunate enough to experience in your own life the cyberbullying of a child at a tender teenage age, and you have to uproot the child with like one year left in high school – might I suggest that there are calmer places to relocate to than Brooklyn? Well, you you know what I mean? Like somewhere more – like, I mean, don't you think Brooklyn would be pretty cosmopolitan? I think that's one way of looking at it. I think the Brooklyn of the slap also has reporters for the New York Post who wait outside of child children's art shows and is like, Hey, uh, hey there, Richie. Got a hot scoop here on the newswire that maybe you tried to kill yourself. Like – I'm just saying, like in, in you know, in, in La Crosse, Wisconsin, they probably don't have those reporters. Sure. No offense. Sure. You're just so done. You're, uh, you're, 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 this, uh, this, with a stick. this show this just reminds me, me. Yeah. I also imagine me of the end of, they never gave uh, Thomas Sadowski an episode. This reminds me of the end of Better Call Saul when, you know, when, uh, what's his name, Marco's lying in the street and Jimmy's poking him with a stick. That's how I feel right now. I'm trying to get something out of you, a reaction. I don't really have, like, I mean, like, the judgment was really good. Uh, I liked when Richie told off Connie in the, t- in the classroom and, like, was, like, shoving his scarred wrists in her face. Yeah, that's very high school. Uh, that happens all the time. I just, you, th- you know, it, I think that this show was definitely did not need to be eight hours. 
I mean, did we need to devote four podcasts to it? <laughs> no. What does this say about us? I just want to learn. I want to learn that something. We follow I don't through. Want- that we follow that's, through. That's the lesson. I don't want people sitting at home or commuting right now just to be like, and the lesson learned was no lesson. Gavel, gavel, gavel. <laughs> I don't want that. I think the lesson should be that if uh, – I, I don't have a lesson from the show. I can't make one up. You haven't learned anything about like about breastfeeding or life <laughs> that you didn't previously know? I mean I definitely do- feel like I want to just take my volleyball and move to a deserted island. Like just – have a FedEx plane drop me off somewhere. <laughs> I definitely want Michael Nuri to work more. Yeah. I would love uh, a fina- – let's do this. Let's end it with this. Of all the characters presented to you on this show, mm-hmm. who do you want the spinoff? <laughs> Let me give you your options. Thanatis. What's it called, the spinoff? Well, I don't, you, can, you can name them. So it's like Greek lawyer, Thanatis doing like his thing. We could do Anouk. And the like, sort of sort of like a Robert Altman esque look behind the scenes of a, of single of a New parenting. York set and a single parenting. Uh, we could do because, because because Jamie ghosted. By the way, I would like to see. Do you think? Wait, do you think Penn Badgley's agent sent a helicopter to set and had him? But removed? to take him where to like yeah, to, con- to like con- continue doing like Jeff Buckley imitations on stage somewhere, um, or just, just like on subway platforms. Yeah. Yes. Uh, I would like to see Hector and the. Uh, and, and the future, like, no. sort of development of New York no. buildings? No? Wah. Yeah, next. Uh, I know. I, I know the one I want. You want Aisha ER? No. Aisha Clinic? <laughs> Aisha ER. I would watch that show. Aisha's that's Anatomy? more for my yeah. personal reasons. Um, no. I want, I want, I want, uh, I want Harry, Harry, the vengeful slapper. <laughs> I want Harry just going about his business, and they'd be like, this, the guy will be like, oh, I have a, I have a vintage Porsche, 1971. There are only 500 of these. And Harry will be like, how much do you want for it, my friend? The guy will be like, $800,000. And Harry is like, slap! <laughs> and the guy's like, $500,000. And Harry's just like, slap! I want to actually, I, I want to, um, searching for Bobby Fisher about, about Harry's son, Rocco. <laughs> just a <God>. chess prodigy. <laughs> what about, what about the uh, ADA, the vigilant ADA? Like, what's her name? Like, Ellen Salter. Yes, yeah, Salter. Miss Salter, are you not doing took, your job? Took the city's money, took the city's time and money to prosecute this case. This case that was a loser from day one. And she's like, you know what? This is a good use of my time and resources. And our resources. And our time. All right. All right. So next, uh, we'll be back next week with Game of Thrones, man. Yeah, although maybe we'll be back before next week. Right? No, we'll be back in the little... middle of the week with Watch the Thrones. But like, we'll we're gonna we have to get our we have to drink some Andro or something. It's awesome playoff time for us. All right, I'm man. Excited. I'll see you next week. Great job, Baranski. Thank you for listening to Grantland. To hear more Grantland shows in your earballs, subscribe to Grantland Sports and Grantland Pop Culture on iTunes, or go to Grantland.com and click on podcast.